Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Mr. Jim Jordan, who is the president of the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse and the managing director of the Accelerator Funds. Uh, Jim has served as a distinguished service professor of healthcare and biotechnology management at Carnegie Mellon University. He has written two books, Innovation, Commercialization, and Startups in Life Sciences, The Intellectual Property Pyramid Assessment, and is currently working on his third book, Health Systems. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Um, so the, the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse, is that, um, is that sort, sort of a, a startup uh, ecosystem in Pittsburgh? It is indeed, yes. It's, it's focused on life sciences specifically. Yeah. Um, it, it came out of sort of the tobacco settlement monies that, that uh, happened with all the various states. And I don't know if you know this uh, bit of trivia, but, you know, Pennsylvania was the first state to institutionalize incubation mm. uh, in, in the seven, early 70s. And so they, they had a general use incubator system, which was called the Ben Franklin system. And subsequently yeah. later, they realized that life sciences has complexities to it and they created three life sciences greenhouse one in philadelphia one in harrisburg and one in pittsburgh and each could go about it their own way and so um we we started out with investing in incubator and had different funds and executive residence program yeah um as you know the life sciences industry is changing has changed quite a bit last 20 years it used to be sort of vertically integrated, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, discovery and development put together into a pharmaceutical company. And increasingly, a lot of the innovation in, in discovery, uh, getting a compound to proof of concept, proof of principle is happening in small companies and in startups and things like that, right? So this is uh, probably a, an opportune time to, to actually get capital into these companies who could be a lot more nimble, a lot more creative, innovative than the large pharmaceutical companies. 
Agreed. And, and, and what's very interesting, since I have been with the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse now for almost 15 years, I've actually witnessed a, a great change. You know, there was a period of time where uh, Big Pharma was uh, really more concerned with organically developing something and maybe they would draw, buy drug discovery tools and medical devices were, you know, quickly sold um, at uh, FDA approval. And there was a lot of what I would call singles and doubles in that industry. Yeah. And once I'm going to say it's around 2006 to probably 2011, the pharmaceutical industry started sorting itself out and realizing that it would be probably more effective to uh, work with people and, and buy startups and let them take the risk and move that risk to the, to the venture capital world. And so we've actually put 60 million into the universities here yeah. in our first uh, few years. And Pittsburgh has taken that money, particularly University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon and got into drug discovery. And so now we're seeing that output um, in, in the past five years here in a way that um, never existed prior to that. And what's what's interesting is you can get money. And I know my my statistics professor would spank me for saying that it's uh, <laughs> easier to get, it's, it's, it's easier to get a drug to a, a fundable milestone than it is a, a medical device because you know, the failure rates are so high in, right. in pharmaceutical, but nonetheless, um, the pathway is, is well known and it's uh, much easier for companies to spread the risk in, in very affordable ways. And we have several companies that, you know, for less than, 50 to 70 million uh, get into into the phase two Bs, um, which become a very attractive target, which is a lot cheaper than uh, the industry would have had to do it if it was inside. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that the portfolio of diseases that uh, that command a larger share of the, uh, the disease spectrum today, they're all you know, generally autoimmune diseases, right? So mm-hmm. we have been extremely successful battling external attacks to the body. Um, it's kind of funny thing to say in the in the midst of uh, midst of a pandemic, but uh, but in general, um, that that disease spectrum. So you know, cardiovascular diseases, uh, obesity related things, and the metabolic syndrome channel, hypertension, type two diabetes. Um, and, you know, uh, arthritis. Uh, so all of those things are related to, uh, obviously, all of us are aging. Um, and so we have a much more uh, o- an older population. Uh, and these diseases are related to, to some extent, age as well. And so what are you seeing in the, in the ecosystem when you, when you look at, you know, companies uh, forming and targeting disease areas uh, what are the disease areas that, that they're generally going after? What, what, what seem more attractive to a startup today? Oh, boy, that's a big question because you can actually go across by vertical yeah. and, 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 and have a, a, a dialogue on that. I think, I think the broader way of, of looking at it is that I, I think we, we took all of our diseases. And if you look at a, a pie, there was no one in the pie, right? So it was really easy to go into these various disease areas and and put some resources to it yeah. and get a, a result not only clinically but actually have a financial result. And so, in places like cardiac, where um, the pie now has been split into many little slices, it makes it 
an extremely challenging situation to be able to go in there and, and make money in those segments. Mm -hmm. and, and yet you have places like Alzheimer's, which we have a company called Cognition Therapeutics that we've invested in. Yeah. Um, lots of you know failure in that marketplace, as you well know, but the person who's gonna get it is gonna have a huge, uh, huge outcome. And that has been one for us that has been really interesting to get funded because it's touched so many families that mm -hmm. the, the, the first CEO of this company raised a lot of money in, in the uh, angel community and the wealthy family uh, network be, because of that. So I think, you know, we're looking at immunotherapies uh, in cancer. We're looking at, at different ways of cancer cocktails are, are still big. Uh, mm -hmm. We're looking at immune responses across the body in, in all different ways in, in trying to understand that. And so um, I think, you know, we have a company called uh, Cyto Agents that's uh, actually looking at the, um, the uh, inflammation cascades after you get influenza. And ironically, they've had trouble getting funded. And, and now with the pandemic, they've been able to, to get funded <laughs> quite, quite easily. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, spaces that, that you can go to and it's a matter about mapping them out. So I have a website called healthcaredata.center and on that we actually have these micro and macro maps by industries that we offer the communities. And if you just went in there and typed it, you can go into the pharmaceutical segment there. Yeah. And you can go down and look at all the disease areas and see, you know, how those those funnels are progressing. And you can sort of pick where there's gaps and there's opportunities like like in the case of uh, cognition with, with Alzheimer's. And then you can go into areas that might be more uh, traditional, like cardiac, and, and look at that and say, well, can I come up with some sort of new cocktail where, and I'm making this completely up, where you know, I can get a benefit of both, uh, you know, we know uh, diabetes and cardiac, and we know end-stage renal disease and cardiac go together. Can right. we find something that can bridge both those, both those places and, and get a win? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, um, sometimes, uh, you know, I think about that there's so many different comorbid, comorbid conditions uh, for aging populations that, and, and medication compliance is a big issue. So, you know, yes. if, if you need to take 10 tablets a day, uh, it's really not going to work as well. Uh, so I would imagine we will be getting closer and closer to combination drugs uh, in fact, more of a personalized medicine type uh, regimen where you you could, um, in the long run, print a personal tablet uh, that takes you know takes all your conditions into account, and you take it once, and you know you're done done for the day. Um, do you think those types of uh, innovations are happening, or it's just a bit too far? I think they're so. The way I I think personal medicine uh, personalized medicine is a is sort of a, a goal concept that's that's way out there and i think what we're going to do is is have steps of what i would call stratification yeah you know you'll you'll be able to take a disease state and slice that pie a little bit more and say you know given the population that we have these are the broader areas that we should be able to to get to but i think yeah i think we're we're going to be going down that that uh, that journey i mean we have a company that um was uh, focused on pancreatitis and had discovered a, um, a gene profile that would lead you to a higher state of pancreatic cancer from pancreatitis. Uh, 
Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you've got this, per, what I call this personalized medicine information system that if I'm a general practitioner and there's some event that happens for the general population that might not be material, but for this, it shows you that you're starting down a pathway that ends in a, in a bad place and if you can intervene. So I think it's going to be, um, the, the drugs are important, but I, I think what's going to lag the, the drug development is, is actually going to be the, uh, the, the health system analytics and population health management techniques. Right, right. And I, you know, I think, um, for example, I, I, I think you, you know, the radiation treatment planning industry for years was trying to get to adaptive uh, therapies, meaning that we all know that we lose, you, we have family members who lose weight as they go through that. And if you're targeting uh, in a certain location and your weight moves, then the precision's not there. So you'd love to have the ability to, um, be able to have adaptive therapy. Well, the radiation <laughs> treatment planning industry was separate from the, the LINAC guys who were actually delivering it. And they had to vertically, vertically integrate because the industry wouldn't catch up. And so I often wonder how, how is that gonna evolve in a, in a 10 or 20 year window for us? And I, I think what's interesting that this pandemic has done is it's it's sort of moved uh, telemedicine and telehealth yeah, yeah. Uh, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and that, could be the blessing out of all this that starts us in that journey that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there is some positive aspects to it for sure. I don't think, um, you know, we really paid attention to it. A lot of people have been talking about it, but it was never really uh, a concentrated focus. Uh, but now there is there is no alternative you know, in some ways. So I think it's definitely taking off. You know, when I think about life sciences startup companies, Jim, um, it is such a difficult industry, you know, in a, in a, in a big pharma company, uh, we can always think about portfolios of targets and products and the diversification of that intrinsic risk is natural for a large portfolio of products. And when you have a startup focused on one product or, or one area or, or couple of products, um, you know, the typical financial techniques uh, from a return perspective is not going to work. Uh, and they really have to think about um, more from an options perspective, right? More from, you know, how much potential exists uh, in the market that they're trying to tackle. And um, on your website, you know, you talk about uh, disease state factbook uh, as a model that maybe startups can think about. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yes, I, I, I think, well, I'll, I'll step back a little bit and yeah. talk about three things and then come back to this. So when you write a book, which was my first book was on, on startups, you, you realize that there's a, a discovery process that you also have along the way. And so what I learned at the end of writing this book is that a startup, unlike a, a Fortune 500 company, has to delicately balance the customer need, the investor need, and the acquirer need. And so I think a lot of times uh, people do not understand the acquirer's needs. And in the time frame that, that you and I have been in the industry, it's consolidated greatly. Yeah. And so there used to be a time where um, you would organically develop inside or you'd buy something early that was a 10 or $20 million market. And I remember when I became an executive vice president at McKesson, and the daily sales rates were in millions as opposed to, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. that to move the dial, you had to create, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses every year. So people would rather wait till they mature 
and and buy them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a piece that startups miss. But the other piece that they miss is is understanding uh, what problem are they solving and how to articulate it. And so the, the Z State Factbook is an exercise that I started doing. Um, boy, in the, in the 90s, I hate to say, where <laughs> you'd go from disease prevalence down to how a disease is, is treated. And when once you join a company like Johnson Johnson or some of these other companies that have you know devices, diagnostics, consumers, you realize when I have a disease, I have a diagnostic component to it. I might have a pharmaceutical component. I might have a medical device component. Yeah. And a, co- a company like J&J, where they have all of those um, they're agnostic. They just want to solve the disease. And so it was a way for me to be able to understand the disease prevalence down to how many diagnostic procedures are there, how many drugs are supporting that disease and, and how many medical devices. And then depending on what I'm doing, if I'm, if I'm interested in the device or the farmer or the diagnostic, I would, I would go deeper. Yeah. And there's a profound story. There's a, a successful company called Bluebell Technologies uh, that got sold to Smith and Nephew. And um, basically the best way to describe this technology was sort of a, I, th- I call it like a CNC, a hand CNC so that you could um, make bone shapes so yeah. that you could have bone sparing um, technologies and not necessarily have to go to full knee replacement. And so the CEO uh, started this out and he wanted to do something very humble. And so he started working on a spinal uh, plaque and that happens after, after surgery, mm-hmm. as opposed to going for, for the knee itself. And the reason was he just thought it was more humble and it was something that was um, easier to prove early on and required less money. And I went and I met with uh, Dan Cole, who at the time was the head of the spray fund for Boston Scientific. And I'll never forget the line he said. He said, it sounds like an important technology chasing a relatively unimportant issue. <laughs> and, yeah. and, what, and what he meant was when you went back to the disease state fact book and said, how am I changing this marketplace? Right. Um, you realized you weren't changing the marketplace. But you had all these people, and we all know friends that have knee issues that don't quite want to get their knee replacement because it's only good for, you know, uh, 20 years or so, and you're you're 40 years old or you're 50 years old. What do you do? And you realize if you do a disease state fat book, and there's an intermediate opportunity to relieve pain in, in, in two ways, one immediately helping that person, perhaps not ever needing a knee replacement, you realize you can grow the marketplace and help mankind at the same time. Right. And so that's what that that's what that tool uh, I think brings out. Yeah, yeah. It's so very simplistically, um, we have to understand what the prevalence or incidence uh, incidence rate might be. We have to understand um, of those who are actually um, are actually diagnosed, um, who are seeking treatment, and and ultimately um, who who actually uh, do something about it uh, from from a payer perspective, who gets reimbursed. And, um, you know, the same sort of situation actually happens in pharma too. So one of the, one of the things that happen in large companies is that when you do incremental innovation, and I want to get your perspective on this from an ecosystem, startup ecosystem perspective, but in large company, when you do incremental innovation, um, obviously your, your success rates are a lot higher. And so, you know, you have certain economics associated with that. Um, and so the disease, the, there are remedies for the disease already in the market. And you are trying to demonstrate superiority or slight improvement to existing therapies. 
and there is some economics associated with it. And obviously, as you know, success rate is a big driver of that uh, ultimate economics that you're going to gain from that product. Uh, on the other hand, if you go after um, disease areas that are not well, um, that, that do not have therapies, I should say, uh, your survival rate or success rates are a lot lower uh, and hence your return expectations from uh, from that type of an investment is also potentially lower. So there is a trade-off between um, economics of incremental innovation and, and going after uh, totally new ideas, first-in-class, best-in-class type product. Um, and if a large company can trade these off because of the large portfolio that it's trying to manage. Uh, but for a startup, I wonder, you know, how do they deal with the question uh, that that those that those returns are so different, and the risks are so different. So you talked about the investors' requirements as well. How do they trade off that when they make decisions? So I um, have again up on on my website under healthcare delivery uh, something called the the um, healthcare delivery flowchart and. Uh, the, the, the reason I made it, it's sort of my simple Hillary Clinton chart when the Clintons were in there because I mean, it's all in one page and it basically shows the, the flow of uh, products and solutions and who's got channel power. Yeah. And so I, I think this is another part of the startup world that, that people don't consider. So you can, you know, if you, if you put that in the context of the Z State Factbook, if I'm already doing it, the incumbent today it has channel control and they may not let the product in because you have this balance of power going between the major manufacturers and the providers. Mm -hmm. If, if you deliver a new drug, that's half or 1% um, better, yeah. is it, is it worth it from a buying power perspective and doesn't really change the statistics of, of my population health management. And I think that's cramping down, on the incrementalism mentality that that happened many years ago, so I think you have that dynamic. Yeah, and then you then you have on the consolidation. Uh, I'm a former finance guy, so there's <laughs> something there's something called the Dupont model, which is net income yeah. over sales, sales over assets, assets over equity, and it cancels out, and you get return on investment. But right. that model um, helps you really understand sort of um, the sales to asset ratio, and in this industry can really change things. And so every time you change out a product. Um, it takes time to, to recoup that money. And so I think the incremental world becomes very difficult mm. um, to be able to invest in from a startup perspective. Now, I think it's different for the, for the Fortune 20 now. They could maybe yeah. do that. But I think we don't necessarily invest in startups that do that incrementalism. Right, right, right. Because from a capital provider perspective, um, you know, if that portfolio is big enough, they can diversify the risk. So, mm -hmm. so, so you you are looking for uh, companies that make a significant difference to the equation, right? Um, you're not looking for anything that is, you know, it's any kind of superiority to existing therapies. No, no, I, I think it's. Um, it, I mean, it, it's not to say that's a black and white answer because you can certainly have, for example, um, in immunotherapy right now, we we have um, high success rate and very small statistical areas, meaning that the, 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 the success is in very small slices of the pie where someone hits a certain, um, you know, profile. And so I think there, 
you could see where you might go into other areas and the incrementalism might be, well, I might move to this genetic profile because the, the landscape is still wide open. There's no competitors in there. Yeah. But I think of blood pressure medication or, um, you know, things like that. Um, I, I don't think there's, there's a big opportunity for uh, startups. Yeah, I want to get your perspective, Jim, on something else that came up in my one of my previous conversations, and that is the lack of focus uh, on basic research, and uh, and because basic research returns um, could be you know more broadly shared, the private returns from basic research uh, may not be high. Um, a good part of the capital deployed in life sciences is about, you know, translational um, or applications, right? It's not doing any basic research. And uh, if that's the case, then it has to be really done by NIH or other type of funding uh, like that. Uh, do you share that view? Uh, and if you do, uh, what do you think we have to do to to bring up basic research? Because if you look at certain disease areas like Alzheimer's, as you mentioned, um, most of the capital is going into areas that, you know, it's a hypothesis um, that, you know, that doesn't seem to work, but people are still trying to make it work rather than going back to the drawing board and asking, you know, can we take a blank sheet of paper and try to work out the problem? Uh, yeah, do you think that is true that we are not focusing on basic research? Um, we were talking about the importance of, of basic research to R&D and just R&D in general by country. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, in 2017, the uh, National Science Foundation put out their, their latest uh, indicators and they're usually lagging. So the January 2020 numbers were regarding 2017. And basically in any given year, roughly two and a half to 2.8% of, of the U.S. gross domestic product has been invested in, in R&D and historically, it's been pretty consistent. <laughs> um, what is alarming, though, is if you break that down from basic research or applied research or development, that almost 63, 64% of those monies are in development and only roughly around 16 to 17% are in basic research. Right. And, the, and the problem is that you know the basic research are the uh, building block components that people use to pull things together. And we're really leaving that mostly to universities now. And there was a time when a lot of industry would be able to uh, pull that together. So if you look at who's performing um, this basic research now, you can break those numbers down further. You've got 11% of the government funding and, and performing it. You've got 61% of academia and only a roughly 27% of industry performing mm -hmm. um, it. And so it's a, it's a, it's a real, uh, it's, it's a real problem. Now, having said that it, it, in terms of the startup ecosystem, when uh, the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse first got funded, uh, we put $60 million towards the universities and we had a joint committee to vote on what we do. And what we were trying to do is match the, innovation researches sources like basic research to applied research to things that were of commercial interest to other people so there's a delicate balance there yeah. uh, but you must have your 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 basic research yeah and and uh, it's not just the money it's also skills right so yes. 
you know, if by definition, commercial, large commercial companies are not really focused on basic research, they won't hire uh, people with those skills, nor the people with those skills want to go work for those companies. And so by definition, you're going to get those skills only in academic institutions. And, you know, it's not something that you can change overnight, right? You know, it's almost like we, we make it happen that way now. Well, and you see the, you know, the past, say, 15 years, the National Institutes of Health have been really talking about this concept of, of translational research. And, um, you know, it takes a little bit of while, like, why are they using this new word and, and what does it mean? What's it <laughs> differ from regular research? But its real intention is that for someone who's trying to solve a problem, they need to know the specifications of the system. And when you think specifically of healthcare, um, the scientist may not know of the environment and what the specifications are in that environment. And so they came up with this concept of translational research where they, they actually go out and try to pair up these basic researches with physicians and doctors and people from industry. And, and more of that uh, needs to be done, but there's just not enough money being put in, in that area. And when you look at the US and you, you, you look at it from an absolute dollar perspective on, on research and basic research, you know, we're sort of holding our own until you sort of look at other nations and you start understanding the growth rates of which uh, they're putting into this area. You start realizing that in a 50, 100 year window, if we don't sort of change the way that we do things, yeah. um, it's going to be problematic. So are we, are we behind, for example, uh, in those percentages, are we behind China and EU? Um, we're not. We're we're behind in growth rate. Okay. Um, and the, there's another dynamic that's happening in the United States that is sort of a little secret that, unless you really are data nerd, you, you may <laughs> not see it. Yeah. Is that there is also a greater portion of that basic research and applied research dollars that are moving towards solving healthcare issues. And, and although I'm from the healthcare industry and I, I, I you know, think on one hand, that's wonderful. Mm. On, the, on the other hand, uh, the growth of gross domestic product is really trying to better the entire economy. And that if you think of, of healthcare by its, its very nature is, um, is really a preventive maintenance. It's not something that's that's necessarily expanding, right? You, yeah. you want all your citizens need to have a certain economic uh, health so that they can have output, but we're not doing something like inventing this new chip or, or doing something that's, that's growing things um, dramatically for our business. So you have sort of a, a dual thing going on. You have us saying, okay, 2.8% is enough and we're just gonna hold there and our economy is a gross domestic product so big that 2.8% is a, a pretty significant number in an absolute dollar term. But then you go in and you look at it and you talk about the, uh, the competitiveness of those monies when you realize we're spending more and more on, on healthcare related matters. That means we're spending less and less on transportation, energy, uh, you know, clean tech, and many other things we could be you know, putting our economy to work on. Yeah, that, that's very interesting, Jim. So I wondered from a from a structural perspective, we also see some very large companies, right? So we have, um, you know, space, uh, space science, uh, quantum computing, um, even alternative energy. 
uh, those types of basic research stuff taken up by large companies like uh, Google and Tesla and Microsoft and others. Um, yeah, so I, I wondered structurally uh, what we have done is to push that off to this, uh, to this large companies. Well, the, as you go through each vertical in our, you know, gross domestic product can be broken down, right? So um, for, for your audience that may not know this, there's a chart of accounts. Yeah. <laughs> it's called NASIS codes, right? And it's a way that the government can kind of roll up the monies and the various things and, and be able to determine who's a healthcare person, who's a consultant, who's a manufacturer of metalwares and all that. And so, you know, depending on the vertical, there is a basic capital structure that's uh, required. So think of, you know, um, an oil refinery, you think of, of historically NASA, where you, you have to put in a lot of infrastructure just to be able to take that next step of innovation. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, um, you know, those industries will and have remained consolidated for a lot of reasons, and, and it's hard to see improvement there. However, what you do see is, um, with the space race, particularly, you see the entrepreneurs that made money in these other fields, these Googles and, and these Amazons and these mm -hmm. other people that are starting to 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 invest. Yeah. But there's just some verticals where startups are um, statistically challenged, right? And and so those kind of industries uh, where there's high capital infrastructure costs to just as the table stakes to enter, it's right. it's hard to get into. But you know, people that are making chips and people that are um, doing, you know, various technologies. There's a, a gentleman that I worked with several years ago who was a physicist out of the uh, University of Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, light bends a certain way and, and therefore filters for light quality. You know, you think of printing, you think of TVs, you know, the high printing companies need to calibrate their colors all the time. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, uh, those filters become... Um, very lengthy and this gentleman came up with a technology that that was able to to minimize those to something very very small and that has a whole array of improvements that can be made not only from just looking at the the cost of your screens at your house um, light quality in your your office to even diagnostics right being able to determine certain colors and things from your from your blood mm -hmm. and that's the kind of technology and innovation that's non you know non-healthcare I just gave an example where it did have a healthcare implication but those are the things that can change economies dramatically and you need to have basic and applied research to do that and that gentleman's grants that discovered this were you know all from the the uh, the United States government yeah uh, I, I want to shift gears and talk about you. You are writing a, another book, right, Jim? So it's called Health Systems. Yes. Um, I wondered if you want to just give a, <laughs> a, a 50,000 foot view of what you're trying to accomplish there. Well, I think, um, you know, I started sort of like, like you did on the manufacturing side of, of healthcare. And as you step back and you start realizing that there's distributors and there's hospitals and there's surgery centers and retailers and, and accountable care organizations and insurance providers and management service organizations, how do they all fit together and how do we make sense of it? And so I started along this, this journey and, and really it started out on healthcare delivery. How do you pull this all together? And then you started recognizing that uh, public health and public policy were also very much dialed in there. And of course, during this COVID time, we, we know that to be true. Yeah. Um, and so I really started to do this to explore the changing of powers. You know, we were talking earlier about 
pharmaceutical companies and, and medical devices companies coming up with an incremental innovation that they sort of pushed into the healthcare system. And I approached when I came to Pittsburgh CMU in the 2004 timeframe, and I talked to a, a, a previous dean there saying, you know, these powers are going to be shifting and how do we predict them and how do we teach them? And that's really the the genesis of of the journey I've taken in the book I'm writing. Okay, okay. Um, so to conclude on this, Jim. So so when you when you look forward and you have a good perspective on this because you're seeing lot of companies, a uh, lot of ideas, and you know if you look at the entire again healthcare spectrum of diseases, uh, perhaps you know there are, there are major categories there, right? There is. There are heart diseases, there is cancer, there is a whole set of diseases related to obesity. Um, so there are, you know, three, four, five major categories there. Um, how do you think, um, you know, what innovations are happening in those categories and how do you think uh, we will solve these problems in the next four or five years? Because you know, these are, you can probably identify four or five diseases that are responsible, I would imagine, 75, 80% of the healthcare costs that we currently bear, right? So having, uh, having a solution to these uh, major categories is going to be important if you're not going to create the bank, so to speak. So where are we and how are things progressing in those major categories? Well, I would step back for a minute and say, I think that the low fruit that we have right now is health illiteracy mm. is, is actually, and chronic disease is, is what's costing most of the, the variance in the system at, yeah. at, at this point in time. So I think the healthcare provider, um, their role is, is going to be to, to work through that. I don't know if you've heard the concept of, of digital vaccines. It's basically talking about, you know, education methodologies, <laughs> okay. gaming technologies. And so I think, I think that part of the industry has to work on that. And that's uh, predominantly uh, going to be about health IT and, and, and those kind of things. I think on our side of the manufacturing side of the industry, when we look at it, uh, it, it cancer, we're now stepping back and saying, okay, well, cancer is about surgery, cancer is about imaging, and, and cancer is about what do you do to help the body's immune system? Because strangely, we, we tax that immune system to get rid of the cancer, and, and then we sort of have to bring it back up, right? So you see immunotherapy and, and sort of understanding how those pieces are, are coming together, and, and how, do we, how do we find metastases? Uh, yeah. better when surgeons are doing there. And so we have nanoparticles and different things that you see people working on. And then I think in the, in the neurospace, um, we, although someone may be focused, say on an ALS or focused on, um, uh, you know, uh, various um, Parkinson's and different things. I think as we look across all those drug streams, we're, we're realizing these, these, these cascades are, are very similar. And so I think, you know, people will, have their first product in the area that makes sense for them in terms of how they can raise money and, and what's the lowest fruit. But I think we're going to find that we're going to step back. And as we have more tools available, it's going to become a simpler story. You know, how do we perturb our, our systems and how do we take care of our entire vascular system? How do we take care of our entire neural system? How do we take care of, uh, you know, you look at Crohn's disease, right? And, right. You know, it, um, autoimmune diseases. There's, there's a lot of um, commonality that we're starting to find, but it goes back to the point that you were making earlier about 
basic research when people what's this, what's the phrase when when you're a hammer the world looks like a nail right so if <laughs> you're if you're if you're developing a product and you happen to work for a company that's that's focused in a specific area guess what the answer is that i think it's these basic researchers um that see the the spaces and see the 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 trends between these these components and uh you know i think we're finding obesity and inflammation yeah. Um, I think we learned during COVID, right? We, we think of um, inflammation historically as, as a bad thing, but inflammation is is also a good thing, right? So we're discovering, don't take ibuprofen, right? <laughs> You're actually, that immune response is helping you. And so we're learning more and more about that. And I think it's going to be the, the drug companies specifically to me, I mean, the medical device and diagnostics are in there, but I think the drug companies are going to have to come forward with these disease state models, because they're probably the best at understanding these diseases. Yeah. And I think that that's going to be an interesting role for pharmaceutical to think about how do I forward integrate and how do I let the startup world bring forward to me the product solutions, but I'm going to understand and have the best, you know, disease state models. Right. Right. Yeah. I really like the concept of digital vaccine. Um, you know, so if our best hope, comes true, we get, we get a COVID-19 vaccine, let's say at 75% effectiveness. I think flu vaccines are more like 65 uh, right mm -hmm. now. So let's say we really get a good one. And if one third of the country um, decides not to take it, you cannot get to the, the herd immunity level that is you know, more like 70, 75%. Uh, and so even the arrival of a, a very effective vaccine at 75% wouldn't, uh, wouldn't get us to herd immunity if that's the case, right? So um, information, uh, getting information out to people, I think is going to be critical. Yes. And, you know, when it comes to public health, I, I think I, I shared with you um, prior to us starting our dialogue here that I, I nerded out. I went down deep into the history of, of public health in this country, all the way all the way back to the, the beginning of, of this country. Yeah. And um, I made a, a, a very complex math where you sort of look at war and transportation technology changes and all this. And at the end of the day, from a public health perspective, we just lag and we're always reactive. And, right. and, you know, so, and that's because the, the, the federal government doesn't really have specific powers uh, described in this area. There's been a battle between states and the federal government on this. However, I think as we, we come to the point where healthcare delivery and insurance companies and, and, and pharmaceutical companies say, you know what, we need to, to bring intelligence to this so that we can not have 18% of our economy and moving upward spent on healthcare where the rest of the world is, you know, between nine and, and 13%, which is, you know, again, as investors, right? If we put a dollar in, we're looking to get, you know, three to $10 out sometime in the future. So if your country every single year is spending an extra 8% on, on healthcare that other countries aren't, and they're getting doubles and triple returns over time, you can just sort of imagine how that's problematic for us. Yeah. So I, I, I think the healthcare system is gonna to have to take sort of responsibility for um, coming up with models and methods to, to motivate us because um, there has been an insulation that's happened in this country. So I can go back to 1905 and the, the out-of-pocket healthcare expenses for family were roughly 5%. 
And even though today everyone's still complaining about how much uh, their health care has gone up, the average family out of pocket is roughly 8%. So since 1905, yeah. we've really been insulated from this increase. Right. And um, somehow, you know, we all make decisions when something gets expensive. And so somehow you have to balance this, this motivation system with, you know, that people should be taken care of and you shouldn't lose your house over, you know, a healthcare issue. So I think that's going to be the responsibility of, of the healthcare delivery people to work that out. And they might drive these changes faster than, than a public health, you know, government model can. Yeah, I mean, there is information that we can we can get. I mean, we can actually study a lot of different types of systems um, out there. And uh, and and I, I hope uh, there are a lot of people working on it. And uh, yeah, it's a problem we have to fix <laughs> because it's uh, it, it's not going to go away. Um, yeah, keep up the good work in Pittsburgh, Jim. And uh, this has been great. Um, really appreciate the time. Uh, that you spend with me and uh, good luck with everything that you do. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Bye.